All right. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the first edition of the All In Podcast. I'm your host, Kirk Gonzalez. Excited to start this show. Nervous to start this show. A lot of emotions around starting this show because I'm going to be real honest with all you all right now. Uh, did not think we needed another podcast, right? Do we need one? Do we really need one? Like, aren't there enough? Yeah, I got it. And every single person on the planet thinks everybody needs a microphone. I got it. But there is a reason why I started this, and I want to share it with you before we get into today's show, because we do have a loaded conversation I want us to get to today. I started this podcast all in because I saw a need for conversations about not just Indianapolis sports and Indiana sports, but we need to have conversations about Indiana culture and how sports and culture intermingle and help us live and enjoy our lives. After all, they are the best parts of our lives. So I want to have conversations with some of my favorite journalists, some of my favorite coaches, former coaches, athletes, former athletes, and just random people that we maybe talk to just about life and this crazy world we live in, in the center of the Midwest, in Indiana, and the sports that are surrounding us and the sports we care about. So I'm excited to get to do that. I'm excited to be able to lead those conversations. I'm excited to have you here with us to go along the way. I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be a journey, and I'm really excited to see where our conversations get us and what we can get to know and learn about each other. And I hope you walk away from this podcast, maybe learning something, maybe hearing something again, but understanding it differently and just walking away for a deeper appreciation of not just the state we're in and the sports we follow, but maybe where we're going and where we're going to be able to go together. So I'm excited to have some of these conversations. I've got a big list lined up here of people we're going to talk to. But today's guest is a special one, uh, Zach Osterman. He's worked at the Indy Star for over a decade. He's covered Indiana Hoosiers football. He's covered Indiana Hoosiers basketball. He's covered Indiana University, everything. Uh, but he knows this program inside and out. I'm excited to talk to him, not just about the football season that is coming up for Indiana football here in just a couple days, but also about Indiana athletics as a whole, collegiate athletics as a whole, and where we're going. You know, we live in a world where just in the past couple of weeks, collegiate athletics has taken a whole new turn, right? You have realignment happening on the hour at this point. You have paying college athletes, which seems like an inevitability at this point. It's changing. And as it changed, we need to be sure to stay up in the loop, understand what's going on. And we have a great conversation with Zach just about what's going on and what's the right way versus the wrong way and how things are going to change and how things are going to change pretty quickly coming up here in just the next few years. So without further ado, let's get to the point of this podcast, the conversation with Zach Osterman right now. On the All In podcast, joining us now, Indiana beat writer for you've been you've been there a while now, haven't you? Yeah, about fifteen, sixteen years. If you go back to my days as a student, there you go, Zach Osterman. Uh, he's the expert on everything Indiana athletics. Talking college football, talking Indiana, getting ready for a Week One opponent against Ohio State. Zach, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Good to have you on. I, I, I want to go. We're going to go to Indiana football. We're going to go in depth there, but I kind of want to start off with something that we kind of saw Jim Harbaugh say this week in his weekly press conference. Obviously, Michigan, kind of a big voice in college football. 
Something he came out and said this week alongside the lines of paying players, and you wrote an article just a little bit ago just kind of about the business of college football and how it is a completely different animal now. And we talk about realignment, the changing traditions, and with that, paying players is a reality that I think we are going to have to face soon. So I, I guess just leading off today, the college landscape has changed so much past few weeks, let alone the past few years, are, are paying players with the revenue made from TV contracts the inevitable thing that we're just all trying to avoid? A lot of people certainly think so. Um, I don't know if, I mean, it, it, I wouldn't sit here and say, like, it's it's a guarantee. I wouldn't call it inevitable in the sense that, you know, listen, there's always a chance that, like, for example, Congress could pass some piece of legislation that grants the NCAA the antitrust exemption it's so clearly looking for that allows it to sort of, you know, say um, you can go this far but no further. And and basically, the, the importance of the antitrust exemption is that, you know, in, at least in theory, you wouldn't be allowed to challenge the NCAA based on the parameters of this law, almost providing a protection. Um, a lot of the challenges to NCAA authority right now are based on, based on antitrust you know, or are made on antitrust grounds. And, and I'm, I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm a, you know, some expert labor lawyer, but essentially what they are arguing is basically unfair labor practice that the NCAA is, artificially and sort of intentionally suppressing the earning potential or the, the sort of market um, for college athletes in a way that violates federal antitrust laws. And, you know, if you, if you go through, you know, any variety of, of sort of criticisms of, of the NCAA, whether it's, you know, obviously something from the media or it is some of these legal challenges, or frankly, maybe the most important one, Brett Kavanaugh's um, concurring uh, opinion in the in the the Alston case from two years ago, um, there is an awful lot of there is a growing and you know weighty sort of I don't know what you call it I guess precedent um, against the NCAA's sort of position on antitrust grounds around the concept of amateurism. Um, this is again, it doesn't guarantee anything. Case law is always evolving and, and you know, if Congress were to pass a law like that, someone would have to challenge it and it would almost certainly wind up in the Supreme Court and they'd have to successfully argue against it. But what I would say, and this is a rambling answer, forgive me, right? That was a lot of background and I don't know if you wanted it or not, but um, the, the mood music around college athletics right now is certainly that number one, Nobody really thinks that sort of antitrust exemption would hold up based on, again, just sort of the current, you know, political landscape. And that's at, you know, the legislative level, that's at the executive level, that's at the judicial judicial level. You know, this, this is something that has been challenged by state's laws. It has been successfully challenged in the Supreme Court. And it's also something that the National Labor Relations Board, which is a, a function of the executive branch of the federal government, um, has started to come down on the side of student athletes as employees. Um, all of that leads, you know, the majority of people I have talked to, and it's not like I've done some massive survey, but coaches 
administrators, ADs, people like that, to just sort of think, believe that this is where we're headed. And, you know, how we get there and the things that will be needed once we get there, obviously, are a, a complex discussion, though I frankly don't think it's as complex as, as some of its critics want you to believe that it is. Um, because we have 200 years of labor and employment law in this country that will help us, that, that will essentially act as a guide that we never had for something like name, image, and likeness, for example. Um, but I think more than anything else, I think Jim Harbaugh is just speaking for a growing mass of people, a plurality, possibly a majority in college athletics that believe this is where it's going and to some extent, frankly, just sort of want to get there. So kind of play devil's advocate here. I, I think the big, the, I feel like it's the NCAA's argument more now than the athletic departments. Cause we've kind of seen a shift from athletic departments point of view on this, but the NCAA point of view is, well, then how are we going to support the non-revenue sports? Is that still even a valid argument or is there just enough money there between TV contracts, um, donors, revenue made to the university ticket sales that it eventually does actually add up. You can make this happen. I mean, I'm not going to lie, it's, that is one of the, the complicating factors that I don't think there's a great answer for, uh, you know, beyond, among other things, you know, um, either A, the market will just kind of swallow some of this, or B, you know, we're going to have to stop paying coaches so much money, we're going to have to stop paying, you know, athletic directors so much money, and um Obviously, the people making the decisions aren't likely to be the ones to start voluntarily cutting their salaries. So um, that's a complicated question. And I don't, you know, I, I think it's it's also a question, the answer to which is different if you're in the Big Ten than if you are in, you know, whatever is left for the moment of the Pac-12. I'm thinking about Stanford, which has, um, you know, so many um, sort of illustrious what you consider non-revenue sports many of which have a, a pretty extensive history of helping fuel um, U.S. Olympic programs. Of course, that's very important. It's different yet again if you drop down to Ball State. It's different yet again if you, you know, go down to the FCS level. And how far down does this go? And, and I mean, it, it. this is why you see sort of the the – and this is, this is not new, but I think it is growing, it is gaining a lot more traction now, you've seen an escalating call for either A, what we call the Power Five, now I guess possibly the Power Four, um, to break away and form its own sort of governance structure because the, the issues you know, facing those 60 to 70 schools are so different than, you know, or, or, or are increasingly sort of you know, removed from the issues facing everyone beneath them, or to sort of find some way to spin football off into its own thing that is governed on its own, or maybe some combination of both of those things, but still filtering some money down to non-revenue sports. What I will say is, I do think we'd figure something out. Now, I'm not, I, I'm not saying there would not be casualties. I'm not saying there would not be, you know, collateral damage. But, you know, for example... Um, do you think Major League Baseball, you know, which has for decades successfully outsourced 
a substantial portion of its player development to college is going to be interested in suddenly investing the resources to, you know, add what 40% more players and, and, you know, having to open a, a whole bunch of new, you know, minor league affiliates and, and, you know, possibly just remaking the entire sort of minor league, major league system, the NBA and basketball, of course, is a revenue sport, but the NBA counts heavily on college as, as yeah. a developmental sort of step. Um, the NBA is not suddenly going to want to take, you know, a thousand basketball players and find some way to house, feed, and develop them on its own. Um, that is, you know, but but the NBA can't lose that talent pool, or it's it's going to, you know, it's it's not going to have access to the best players. So my point is, I think we're going to find a way in all this. I do think, like I said, that there will be collateral damage somehow, um, but. And there will be some winners and some losers, but I, I, I don't, I don't think I, I don't follow the alarmist sort of thinking that uh, college athletics is just going to sort of melt behind football and basketball, um, just because there's there's sort of too much interwoven infrastructure there anymore. Again, there will be you know, there will be fallout. I mean, the Pac-12 basically doesn't exist anymore, as an example, but. Um, I don't think that we're just going to suddenly like not have college swimming or college lacrosse or, you know, college volleyball because we just have to pay the players. I think that there will be, I think there will be, you know, middle ground found somewhere. When I look at it, it just seems to me that it, it, the big elephant that, you know, when we talk about realignment, you, you know, we're the focus of the realignment talk when you're when you're talking you adding USC and UCLA to the Big Ten. It's funny. No one's really talking about looking forward to the USC Ohio State February basketball game. Hey, the center seems to be on football. And I think that's kind of where a lot of this dialogue and a lot of this discussion about the changing dynamics of college athletics is getting lost in the med the simple truth is the money and the discussion is centered around football because that is where the money and the attention is. So my, do you think we're closer to an NCAA? Just, you know what? Football power five, you guys do your thing and just, we're just going to keep our hand. We're just going to keep our hands on the minor programs, power four, whatever it is now, go, go do your thing, go sell your own self-governance, feel free to play our minor programs during the preseason. Um, is that the easiest way to go about this or is it just blow it up entirely and let's just start from scratch? I don't think you start from scratch in the sense that like, you know, we may not call it the NCAA, but there are still a lot of people who have spent a lot of time operating in the functions that you're going to need to govern college athletics in the NCAA's headquarters. Maybe we call it something else. Maybe we reform it as something else. Um, but you still need people who understand eligibility issues or you still need yeah. people who understand, you know, just, just the, the, the large numbers of how you, you know, sort of database and track all these athletes and, you know, and, and all the different kind of functions of any governing body, because what would any, you know, what would the governing body of, of a, you know, the, the brand new governing body of a power five, you know, let's say the power five, power four conferences look like, well, there would probably need to be a president or a commissioner that was at the head of the thing. There would need to be, you know, rules and there would need to be executive committees and there would need to be people that voted on the rules and debated the rules and enforced the rules. And, 
very quickly you, you draw a picture that looks something like the NCAA, but possibly with just more sort of autonomous control from the large conferences. I, I mean, it's, it is difficult um, to really know exactly which direction this goes. Cause like, for example, you know, it's, it's sort of easy to say, well, just let those conferences tear off and do their own thing. Well, you know, but for the moment, what, does that mean the NCAA has to avo- absorb football at some level? Because the NCAA doesn't run anything related to, to football, bowl subdivision football at the moment. Um, it, other than like eligibility issues and, and stuff like that, like it doesn't run the bowls. It doesn't run the conferences. It doesn't make the schedules. It doesn't run the conference championship game. So my point is if, if, if the power four, let's just call it that for now, because I think that's pretty much what it is, broke away. Well, there's still five other FBS conferences that are going to want you know, a meaningful amount of investment in football. And I know that the numbers aren't the same, but like the Sun Belt, especially now, I mean, this may not have been true 10, 15 years ago, but like, you know, I, I grew up, when I was growing up, my, my dad went to Georgia Southern. Uh, both my parents did. And so my dad's a Georgia Southern fan. And so when I was growing up, you know, I remember dad getting the pay-per-view games to watch Georgia Southern, you know, in the, in the, the uh, what we now call the FCS playoffs at the time it was Division One AA. Um, that stuff is more sort of interwoven within the NCAA's structure. Um, and back then, the big schools in 1AA were, you know, Georgia Southern, Furman, which is still there, Youngstown State, which is still there, um, Jacksonville State, which I believe is, is now coming up, if I'm not mistaken, is coming up to FBS. Appalachian State, which is well-established in FBS. Yeah. Coastal Carolina, which is established in FBS. We can go on and on. My point is, you know, the Sun Belt right now certainly does not have the agency of the SEC, but it is also light years away from the old Southern Conference, which is where, you know, Furman and Wofford and Georgia Southern and App State and all those schools would, would play in the 90s and early 2000s. And so those those entities are still going to have enough sort of stake and enough appeal and whatever whatever other term you want to use that you can't necessarily really um, go you know just just sort of wipe them away. And again, there will be some collateral damage, but there's also like nobody's going to turn down money, and ESPN is still going to look at it and say, well, you know, it's not the biggest deal in the world. But it's not like, you know, Georgia Southern App State is an, an old rivalry from 1AA. It's not nearly as big of a deal as, you know, when Tennessee plays Alabama. But Tennessee and Alabama aren't going to start playing each other three times as many times as they were before. We still need the content. People are still going to turn it on, you know, and, and, and maybe cable shrinks to a certain point. I don't know. Um, and this is, again, where you start to you get lost in this really fast because there are so many wrinkles to it so many layers to it so many unforeseen consequences stuff that you and i could sit here and debate for three hours and still not see coming in five years um so i guess my my short answer is i just don't know exactly what the future holds i think it is almost certainly going to be something that is more um you know that 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 marginalizes the NCAA, minimizes its its control further, um, 
at least at the highest levels of the sport. But how far that goes, I don't know. Is it is it only the Power Four? Is it all of FBS? Is it just football? Is it football and men's basketball? Again, how does it you know how does that money filter back down? There's so much that is is confusing um, that I don't have a, a perfect answer for, to be honest. Yeah, I, I don't know if a perfect answer exists. I mean, that's just the world we live in today, but. It just seems there's a lot of confusion and there's, like you said, there's so many levels to this that I think there is going to be some casualties. There's going to be someone that feels left out of the mix. Um, But that is just in a weird way, the world of which we live. Speaking of people that are usually left out of mix, a little transition here. Um, Indiana football, it, it feels like 2021, 2020 was 10 years ago. It's hard to believe that was within you know, the same half decade, um, three and nine last year, two and 10, the year before it, just as far as this, I want to kind of start off this Indiana football discussion by just kind of s- taking a dive at what is the state of Tom Allen? What's the state of the program from your perspective, what you've seen this summer, where is Indiana football at right now in this craziness that is college football? Are, are they trying to, are they building? Are they, Refreshing. How would you describe it? I think, you know, from from Tom Allen's perspective and kind of the perspective of the momentum of the program at the moment, the the thing that still kind of hovers in the corner is the 2021 season. If that had never happened and and Indiana had just sort of, you know, there'd been no COVID year, you know, a lot of these guys had moved on on more normal timelines. I think Indiana would have entered a rebuilding phase that would have just seemed natural. If you look at, you know, Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern, if you look at, you know, some of the success coaches have had at Illinois in the past, it, even the sort of good, the, the, the perception, Pat Fitzgerald's Northwestern is often held up as kind of the, the paradigm, obviously, previous to what's been going on in the last few months. Yeah. Um, and the perception when you're an Illinois fan, a Purdue fan, an IU fan, is always just, well, why can't we just be Northwestern? Pat Fitzgerald, he just, they go 7-5 and five every year. They always go to a bowl game. Well, they don't. He, he had, you know, he'd do three, four years in bowl games. Then there'd be a down cycle because it's hard to just consistently build your roster, uh, you know, again and again and again at Northwestern without a few misses in recruiting and a little bad luck with injuries and scheduling and whatever else. And so there'd be a down cycle, and then they'd come back up again, and they you know two, three, four years straight bowl games, and then there'd be another down cycle, and then they'd come back up again. And it would be natural for Indiana to be in a down cycle right now if, again, if 2021 hadn't happened. Or if, or if Indiana had even gone 8-4 and four in 2021, gone to the, you know, the, the Music City Bowl, and then all those guys had left. Maybe some of them transferred, some of them went to the NFL, some of them just said, I'm done. But the point is it would be natural to be on a down cycle right now based on where that roster was 2018, 2019, 2020. 21 is what what still sort of lingers over everything. And um, and that's the thing that I think in his, his fan base's mind, Tom Allen is still paying for. I think, broadly speaking, he's, his job is still relatively safe. His buyout is very coach-friendly through the end of next season. I think something pretty drastic would have to happen for Indiana to feel like it needed to go find the money it would require to move on from Tom Allen and still be competitive in paying his um, his replacement. Although 
you know, maybe the Big Ten media deal changes that. I don't, you know, that that, that calculus, I don't know. Um, I also just, you know, I've always said this, a place like Indiana has got to be patient, especially with somebody who's proven that they can do it, you know, and, and I understand that, that the frustration IU fans have over the last two seasons. I've been there. I've seen it all. It's been ugly at times. The flip side is, you know, over his first four seasons, Tom Allen, you know, won at a level Indiana hadn't seen since Bill Mallory. And you have to be careful about throwing that away. They learned that when they got rid of Bill Mallory the first time, um, thinking that they wanted something different, something, you know, maybe a little sexier and whatever else. And then they, you know, they fired Bill Mallory and they went to one bowl game in what was that? Like, I think 22 years, something like that, 21 years. Um, so you always have to, there's always an element of be careful what you wish for. I do think what's interesting about Indiana, you know, there's sort of been this, I don't know, criticism may not be the right word, but this wariness of how much Indiana's hit the transfer portal in the last couple cycles. Um, I, there's no right answer to this, this sort of question or this debate, but I do fall on the side of basically that's just the future for programs like this. That yes, you'd like some more homegrown talent. You'd like a little more consistency when you're thinking about, you know, who your starting quarterback is, for example. Although I would point out that if Dexter Williams doesn't suffer a freak knee injury in the Purdue game, that's not really a question. There's no quarterback battle. Dexter Williams spends the off season preparing as the starter. He comes in as the starter. Indiana builds some depth behind him, but you, you know, you don't have this sort of like constant revolving door. If you don't have some bad luck with injuries in the last few years, um, but there really is an extent to which outside of maybe the top 10 to 12 programs in the country, everybody's got to embrace the fact that sometimes you're just going to have to really, you know, almost have these like portal projects where you remake, you know, positions. Uh, Indiana's defensive line is a great example. Um, it's secondary and maybe another one by the end of the season. You just have to go into the portal and try and remake a position because you just, you, you can't, you know, you're going to have some misses in recruiting. You're going to lose some guys to the portal. You're just going to have to, you know, there's going to be more roster churn. I mean, think about the, the players that Indiana took out of the portal this cycle. Oregon, Texas Tech, Texas A&M, Stanford. These are all programs that, you know, you would probably consider as good or better than Indiana at the moment. And I'm not saying every single one of these guys was wanted by that program before they left. But the point is, everybody's got to learn to deal with this. And I think the, the best you can do is just kind of try to make the best of it. And it seems like Indiana has, in, at least in some cases, and we'll see how this season develops. But I think that we used, you know, we, there's sort of this perception that if you have all these guys from the portal on your roster, then you must, you know, your program must be kind of in a bit of a state of chaos. I don't think that's true anymore. And maybe I'll be proven wrong. I don't know. But I think I think we've just got to look at, at teams that hit the portal like that, especially, again, outside of maybe the teams that can expect to recruit and retain at a pretty elite level. Um, I just think this is this is life for programs like Indiana anymore, and you've got to figure out a way to, to survive in it. Yeah, they're not, they're not going to be a – Ten and a half win average team for the next decade, and I think that's even if you do hypothetically have your perfect coach, your perfect roster. It's just too tough of a schedule. It's too tough of a situation. It's hard to build when you're going against Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, three times a year. 
I, I guess the other thing I think that Tom Allen maybe doesn't get credit for um, is just the despite the losing seasons, despite the adversity, despite the ups and downs, despite the question marks, he does still have a general buy-in from majority, if not all, of his roster. I mean, in this program, the belief that just kind of it, – it does seem that way, does it not? No, I think that's fair. And, you know, you, 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 I use Kirk Ferentz as the example in this all the time. When I was winning, everyone's like, oh, it's look at Stoic Kirk. He's, you know, he never gets rattled. Football keeps moving on, but he keeps doing his thing, you know, and, and, and it's Iowa toughness and, oh, they're so stingy on defense and they grind you down and that's great. And then in the years when Iowa struggles, it's this offense is outdated. We're running Stone Age stuff. Kirk looks completely disinterested on the sideline. There's no energy in this program anymore. We're getting left behind. And the, the reality is, you know, just that you, you ultimately um, you're judged by your success. And, and that's, you know, that, that's a simple thing to say, but a lot of the perception around guys, around coaches is just going to be defined by essentially whether you're winning or losing. And so at the moment you have, obviously a decent amount of sort of like, Oh, Tom Allen doesn't know what he's doing. Look at, look at this, you know, look at this, this, the, 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 the program that can't find a good offense, the line. Oh, he's, he's too loyal to this guy or that guy, whatever. The way, I mean, Tom Allen, again, the other part of this is you're, you're typically either labeled like a, a master motivator or you're labeled an X's and O's guy and you can't, there's no crossover. If you're a motivator, it means you're not good at X's and O's. If you're good at X's and O's, it means you, you know, you're just a, you're just a scientist in a lab and your, your players don't really care. You, you're just sort of like you're, you're playing chess with them almost. And of course that's never true. Tom Allen is a really bright football coach. You know, go talk to the, the coaches who've had to scheme against his defenses. They'll tell you like, he does some really good stuff. He throws in these wrinkles. It's difficult. Um, what works for him, especially at a place like this, though, is what you talked about, which is the buy-in. And I think it absolutely still exists. Um, I think that, you know, he, he still gets his guys to really play a little harder, to push a little more, maybe to, to buy into him in a way that they wouldn't, the average coach in his position, because they can see that there is, he cares, it's it's meaningful, it matters to him. I You know, and again, this goes back to like when, in 2019, 2020, when everything was great, everybody wanted to talk about LEO. They wanted to talk about this 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 sort of maxim that he held that he he permeated you know, permeated his whole program. It was all over football. There was that viral clip of him being interviewed at ESPN with the players running off the field in Wisconsin, and it was like, well, you know, Indiana fans were just like, this is great. We love this. We're we're embracing the hell out of this. Um, when it starts to go bad, suddenly it's this is a dumb catchphrase. It's just, it's just, you know, something to put on a T-shirt to distract from all the losing. It's not. It matters to these kids. That does not mean it's going to work all the time. It doesn't mean yeah. it's going to work enough to sustain this. That, that, that is just the nature of college football. Like, it, it, college football programs are like sharks. They have to keep moving or they die. And sometimes that movement is backward. And at a place like Indiana, what history tells us is – Forward momentum is very difficult to sustain. 
Tom Allen may ultimately not be able to regenerate it. I don't know. What I do know is the the you know what he bases all this on is genuine. It's genuine to his players. It's genuine to his coaches. It matters to them, and it is a it is a big part of what brings him success when he is successful. The question is just basically whether he can get it back again. And I think this season is going to be very instructive in that in that regard. Another tradition been happening with IU football lately. Quarterback battle. We're in another one. Uh, they do have a starter. Allegedly, they have chosen somebody. Uh, I, I believe it's between Brendan Sorsby and Taven Jackson. Between those two guys, what are, what are pros and cons of both? And who do you, who do you see suiting up and get that start week one against Ohio State? Yeah, I mean, I don't. To be honest, I don't. Um, I don't know for sure. Um, I think I think Sorsby's probably a little better in the pocket. I think Jackson's a little bit better on the move. And so some of that can be down to, you know, how you want your, I mean, like if, and if, what I mean by that is, you know, think about like the Kyle Shanahan offense, you know, Kyle Shanahan's quarterback's best work often is, is when you get the quarterback moving, you know, whether it's through play action or something else. Um, I think Jackson may be better, a little bit better thrown on the run. Um, I think the, the other question that I have that really can't be answered until we see these guys live, because I think Indiana is going to try and retain some of these option concepts that it put in for Dexter Williams last year. Um, I think it's got a line. It wants to move around a little bit, maybe take some of the pressure off of, off of those guys. I think it's got a, a running back room that it needs to make the best of because that, that is the most proven and possibly the best skill group in the offense. Um, certainly right now it is. And so you're going to need a quarterback that can do some of that. And ultimately, you know, number one, that tests, you, know, you can watch, you can watch that all you want in, you know, live, live practice situations, but it's different when it's the decision-making of a quarterback is tested in the, you know, the speed of the game. When do I, how do I read my keys? When do I leave the ball in the dive man's hand? When do I go around the edge? When do I keep it? When do I pitch it? Do I have the, you know, almost the, the bravery to hold on to it to the last possible second, then make a good pitch, take that hit, but open the lane for my run, my pitch man, my, my, my pitch back. Um, and also to some extent too, and I'm not trying to pick on Michael Penix when I say this, but I, I've said it in the preseason before. Michael Penix was a great runner in the open field. Peyton Ramsey was a much better running quarterback. And the reason why was because Peyton Ramsey had a lot more experience running the ball, If even if you go back to high school. And I use this comparison or I use this reference all the time. People used to ask Paul Johnson, the triple option coach, are you worried about your quarterback getting hit so much? And he said, None, not one of you has ever asked if you're worried about my running backs getting hit so much. And the reason you aren't is because running backs know how to run the football, they know how to take a hit. They know how to deliver contact back. They know how to sort of brush off contact so that even when they get hit hard, it, do, it doesn't impact them the same way. And nobody ever says, are you worried about your running back getting hit 30, 35 times a game? If you teach a quarterback to do the same thing, a lot of the same things, and you, you, know, you prepare him physically in a lot of the same ways, then he'll be okay. Peyton Ramsey was a lot better at that than Michael Penix was. And therefore, Peyton Ramsey often was better at protecting himself in the open field than sometimes Penix could be. We have not seen either of these guys in live go situations. 
So I also can't tell you who's necessarily the better runner, not just necessarily more athletic. I think Jackson is probably a more athletic quarterback, possibly, you know, noticeably so. Is he a better runner in the open field, though? Does he know how to read a block? Does he understand how to sort of, you know, when, when he's when he's at the second level and he's got maybe a tight end with him, how to how to, you know, ride the block of a tight end the way that a, uh, the way that a running back would to get extra yards, when to go out of bounds, when to slide, again, how to take contact or deliver contact, those sorts of things. I just don't know um, because we've not seen neither of these guys do it. If you if you handed me fifty bucks, I said this on an Ohio State podcast yesterday. If you handed me fifty dollars and you said you could put this on whichever one you think is going to be the starter come Saturday afternoon, which do you think it will be? I would say Taven Jackson, but that's a very 51 49 sort of pick. And I think a lot of it is, is frankly going to come down less to, you know, if, if we were somehow able to assign an overall rating to these players, like you would in a video game, I don't think they'd be very far apart at all. I think it would maybe come down to basically, what else Indiana thinks its offense needs to be good and which quarterback is better at that. So for example, if Taven, if Indiana does want to do more of this triple option out of the gun and Taven Jackson is better at that than Brendan Sorsby for whatever reason, then I think that could be a, a leg up in J- Taven Jackson's favor that doesn't say, Oh, he's a head and shoulders, better quarterback, because I think they've both got some good things about them. Some, some bet, you know, some rough edges about them. They're both redshirt freshmen. That's the other thing I've, I've said to anybody who asked, do not forget, both of these guys are really young and they're going to make mistakes. But I think it might come down a little bit more to basically what Indiana feels need to be the basic functions of the offense and who who fuels those functions better. It just all it also has a similar feel to the Penix Ramsey kind of feel where it was kind of like okay, it could change on any week depending on the defense look that Indiana is going to get from the offensive angle. Uh, so I'll be interested to see what they think works best against Ohio State. And what we see week one could be very different from what we see week two, and we've seen that in the past with this program, and it would be shocking to me. Offense as a whole, though, fifth worst offense in 2022, according to Pro Football Focus. Does that get improved this year, do you think? I mean, I'm not trying to be flippant when I say it would be hard for it to be a lot worse. Um, and, again, you know, it, it – I do, there's a part of me and like, it's, you know, you start to get into kind of self-fulfilling prophecies and self-confirming evidence or whatever you want to say um, when you have these conversations where it, it, I think that there's every possibility that Tom Allen wanted something more like what Indiana was running at the end of last season more like what I suspect Indiana, and maybe I'll be proven very wrong on Saturday afternoon, but what I suspect Indiana will be running, at least to some extent, at the beginning of this season. I suspect there is every chance he wanted more of that from Walt Bell than what we saw over the first part of last season. And basically, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to do anybody down but kind of the best that the best that anybody could do in the first part of last season was Connor Bazelak play to his strengths as a quarterback. Don't ask him to be all mobile when he's not. Um, and then find your way to 
you know, Dexter Williams. I don't want to say it was, you know, it was, was forsworn because, I mean, we saw Brennan Swordsby out on the field before we saw Dexter Williams out on the field. But the long-term plan was to find your way toward a quarterback more like Dexter Williams that's more true dual threat that can get out in space and, and hurt you. Um, you know, Indiana has never run the ball prolifically under Tom Allen, and every year he says he wants to run the ball better, and every year they throw it all over the field. But, you know, if you think about Indiana's best offenses under Tom Allen, they still had a real quarterback run aspect to them. Michael Penix, Peyton Ramsey, I think a, you know, a not insignificant part of the reason that Tom Allen pulls Richard Lego in the middle of the Virginia game in 2017 or 20, yeah, 2017 is because he wants a quarterback more like Ramsey. He wants less of a sort of you know, statue pocket passer and more of an open field runner. Um, I think that this offense, just by na- by its nature, is going to have to bend a little bit more toward the run game if it's going to be successful this year than it has in the past. But I have a suspicion that Indiana, that, that when Tom Allen hired Walt Bell, he wanted more of that anyway. And in fairness, again, it's kind of hard to judge, you know, in, and I'll, I'll look these stats up while we're talking, um, 2019, which is, is almost certainly, you know, Indiana's best offensive season, let's say, under Tom Allen. Peyton Ramsey throws in 2019 for 2,454 yards, and that is in, I want to say something like about eight and a half games. He also rushes for 252, and if you look at his career overall, he rushes for close to, what is this? I'm doing the math in my head. Forgive me. This isn't great radio, but he rushes for well over 800 yards across three seasons, and he rushes for 14 touchdowns in those three seasons and that's not sack adjusted so if we if we if we sack adjusted those numbers and i'm just looking at his espn profile so i don't have them in front of me but if we sack adjusted ramsey's numbers i suspect he'd be closer to a thousand yards across three seasons despite the fact that he's only the starter for probably about 60 to 70 percent of the 2017 season because he gets hurt he split snaps at times with michael Penix in the 2018 season and he's not the starter but for a little over half of the 2019 season so I think Indiana has always wanted more of that element than it's been able to get. It had to dumb some things down in 2020 because COVID was so weird and game prep was so strange. It also just had a great pocket passer in Michael Penix. The quarterback position was so banged up almost from the get-go in 2021, and everything else was so wrong in 2021 that you really weren't going to get any. There was nothing to be. There were no conclusions to be drawn about the goals of that offense because it was just so poor so quickly. Um, I think the there is every chance that this was always intended to be more of a, a, a run-pass balanced offense, and Indiana just wasn't quite ready to run it at the beginning of last season. And it's really easy to say, well, then why did they take Connor Bazelak? Why didn't they go for someone else? Well, listen, you know, if there was just an infinite supply of players of certain skill sets everyone would have what they need. It's the, you know, it's the same thing. Everybody always goes into the portal in basketball looking for rebounding, three-point shooting, and point guard depth. If everybody needs it, not everybody's going to get it. Um, and so I think Indiana kind of had to, to sort of make do with what it had to some extent last year, but I think that it is possibly better equipped for what Tom Allen wants this year. 
And that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work all the time. But I think it does mean that you're going to see something much more resembling what Tom Allen has in his mind's eye. And we'll see if that, we'll see if that turns out, if that pays off. Two more for you really quick. Defensively, last season really ranks up there as one of the worst we've seen. And Tom Allen's year is just not efficient, not getting the job done, not getting off the field. Bring back Aaron Casey, bring back some depth at that, DB position, you bring in some key transfers from what I've heard from people inside the program. The defensive line looks completely different and just looks like a Big Ten defensive line. What does that look like throughout the course of the season if they can stay healthy? Yeah, I mean, it's what I've said when people have asked is that Indiana kind of turned convention around through Tom Allen's first six seasons. You know, normally we think no matter what the defense, we sort of think of defensive convention as you win the line of scrimmage, you control the run, you create favorable down and distance situations, you pressure the pass, and that makes life easier on the back end. And if you have an elite corner or elite safeties, then that's great. And and you get a, you know, you get a Daryl Revis or you get a, a, you know, whatever. But the, the, the reality is that the teams that control the line of scrimmage tend to be the best even Indiana's good defenses under Kane Walmick tend to, tended to actually kind of start, with all respect to your front four, five, six, tended to start with that secondary. And you just had, and some of it was just the, the talent Indiana managed to amass back there. You had all Big Ten players, you had all Americans, you had NFL draft picks, um, guys who played young together and grew up together. I mean, think about all the football games that like Bryant Fitzgerald and Devon Matthews started together, for example, or Taiwan Mullen and Jalen Jalen Williams, etc. And so you kind of had this this security blanket at the back that allowed Indiana to be more creative to maybe cover some gaps in again the front four, the front six, and then you you, you couple that to having some really good linebackers in Cam Jones and Micah McFadden, that made life a lot easier for a defensive line that sometimes just kind of had to be the sum of its parts, uh, you know, and, and I'm. I'm that's being a bit harsh on some players thinking about a Jerome Johnson or a, you know, a DeMarcus Elliott. But the point is it always felt like the defense almost sort of went back to front in, in its, its, its construction. Sorry. I don't know why that happened. Um, in its, in its, you know, sort of its construction and its operation, this defense, I think it's going to have to be much more conventional. There's so much uncertainty in that secondary. You've got a ton of transfers you got a ton of young guys who have not played much football, at least in an Indiana uniform. Um, I think there is talent there. And, you know, in what we were able to see in the spring, I think there are some guys that, you know, by, I mean, like it's, it, it may not show up week one because Ohio State is just like wide receiver you. And every time they graduate a really, really good one or lose a really, really good one to injury, Another one pops up. Now it's Marvin Harrison Jr., but, like, there'll be somebody else. You know, I mean, last year we thought Jackson Smith and Jigba might be the best coach, or might coach, I don't want to say coach, might be the best wide receiver in the Big Ten. He's injured all year. Here comes Marvin Harrison's kid. And, and he, you know, he might be the best wide receiver in the country. Um, it may not show week one. I do think that that secondary's got some tools, and it's going to have to be polished as the season goes along. But what's going to have to carry the day early for Indiana is that defensive line. And if you if you drew up a two deep, Indiana didn't release a two deep for week one. But if you drew up a two deep right now, it would be 
populated almost entirely, if not entirely, just a projection you know, based on what we saw in the spring, it would be populated entirely or almost entirely by um, players who transferred in either in the 2022 cycle or the 2023 cycle. And I think Indiana needed that. I think it needed more size, more athleticism, certainly more length. I think there's just a lot more like, I mean, you know, people don't think about this, I think, as often as they should in line play. But like, if you've got longer arms than the guy across from you, it's easier for you to get him away from you than it is for him to get you away from him. And I think Indiana's got more of that this year. I think Anthony Jones, I think Marcus Burris, I think Linnell Carr, I think um, certainly Andre Carter, who might be the best player on the football team full stop, are going to be players that make a difference for Indiana in that front four. Um, and that is, I mean, that is also, again, just kind of a case study in can you rebuild a, 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 an entire position through the portal, especially when you're maybe in Indiana and not like a Penn State or a Michigan or somebody like that. Um, but I do think it's, it's just, um, it's got to be something where Indiana's defensive front, which I do think is significantly better than a year ago, sort of holds, holds firm and allows Indiana over the course of maybe the first half of the season to really develop that. Certainly that, that back five of a secondary that's got, you know, a couple proven players, but plenty of inexperience, at least in an Indiana uniform. And maybe to some extent back seven in terms of finding some depth around Aaron Casey and Jankum Mango Farrar, the, the Stanford transfer, and you know, just sort of figuring out that, that linebacker rotation as well. Last one for you, and then we'll move on to our final segment of the day. I, I don't want to go through a whole schedule because I, I think we can do that all day and we can talk about hypotheticals. That's dry. Bottom line, what's the ceiling and floor for this team? Uh, is it at – say what we've seen the past two years as a floor and then maybe getting to a bull as a ceiling. I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think probably that's, that's probably fair, at least roughly. So I think I have this kind of barometer for, for IU football that I use sometimes that um, basically I just say, um, do I think that, there's a reasonable chance that their worst case scenario is their five and six going into the Purdue game. So that, 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 you know, at worst they are in control of their own destiny, their own fate, whatever you want to say, postseason wise going into the last game of the season. I would have said no in the spring. I would have said no in the summer. I'm closer to saying yes after fall camp and that can be dangerous. And I'm, you know, I'm not diving head in head first because it's really easy to watch fall camp and say, boy, these guys look good against each other. Cause I, I mean, you're not seeing them play anybody else, but I think they are demonstrably better on the defensive line. I think there's, there's a good chance they are sort of again, demonstrably better on both lines of scrimmage. There is no faster way to improve in college football than to get better along both your offensive and your defensive line than you were the season before. Even quarterback play doesn't affect it as much as the ability to effectively block and effectively disrupt an opponent consistently. And again, that may not show against Ohio State, but that Ohio State's not what matters to this conversation. You know, if, if like if right now you offered Indiana maybe Sands the Muhammad Ibrahim injury, a couple of years ago Minnesota opened with Ohio State at home on a Friday night. It was CJ Stroud's first game as a starting quarterback. And 
I think Ohio State won 45 to 31. And again, the, the, the big headline for Minnesota um, was that Muhammad Ibrahim got hurt. But it, it, the, the sort of undercurrent takeaway for that Minnesota team, which it should be said won nine games that season. Um, they did. They lost 40, 45 to 31 to Ohio State. It was actually the exact same day Indiana will play Ohio State, September 2nd. And then they won six of their next seven games. And they weren't all pretty. They beat Purdue by seven. They only beat Miami of Ohio by five at home. Um, but the point is, Minnesota got to come out of the Ohio State game thinking, you know, we still have some credit for this here. Yes, we lost. And yes, Ohio State scored 45 points. But we also scored 31. And we were with them for a while. And we were holding firm. And... Minnesota turned around, as I said. They even lost to Bowling Green that season, now that I'm looking at their schedule. But they turned around, and they were bowl eligible by Halloween because they won six of their next seven games. And by the end of that season, they were 8-4 and four in the regular season, and then they beat West Virginia in the guaranteed rate bowl, whatever the hell that is. I guess that's probably the inside bowl, what used to be called the inside bowl. If Indiana could have a day like that against Ohio State, I think that that would be great for Tom Allen. Again, removing the injury, you know, the injury to your perceived best player, the, the season-ending injury to your perceived best player that Minnesota had to absorb. Um, I think that broad, more broadly speaking, Indiana, as I said, is better along both lines of scrimmage. Quarterback play is the thing that holds me back the most. The thing that holds me back second most, for lack of a better term, is that secondary. But if the line can stay healthy and can stay together and can perform as I think it will, then that can mitigate a lot of issues in an inexperienced secondary. And so I think I think Indiana is closer to that sort of baseline that I talked about that I just sort of keep in my own head, five and six going into the Purdue game, or better. I think Indiana is closer to that baseline than I expected it to be. But until we see more from this team, you know, what does the offensive balance look like? Can they find some consistent and reliable pass catchers? Can they mold and gel that, that um, what is the word I'm looking for, that secondary? And above all else, can they get some consistent quarterback play by, let's say, if not the Louisville game week three, then certainly the Maryland game week five. You know, that's when I think we will maybe have a better idea. Because the other thing I would say, too, is Indiana plays Ohio State week one. And I know people say, boy, Indiana keeps getting screwed with these Ohio State, you know, playing Big Ten games early on. And the second time Tom Allen's open against Ohio State. But you know what? If the worst thing that happens is you lose to Ohio State week one, you don't have to play them weeks two through 13. And Indiana plays Michigan on in week six, which means that Indiana's most difficult road game and or home game, and in all likelihood, its most difficult road game. We'll see what Penn State is this year, but both of those, there's a very good chance they're crossed off the list in the first half of the season. And if you can get out of that stretch, even three and three, and then beat Rutgers at home, I think that's homecoming the weekend after Michigan, or maybe it's two weekends yep. after Michigan. I don't remember their bye is off the top of my head. Um, then suddenly you're four and three with Illinois, Michigan State, and Purdue still on the schedule. And the idea of, again, at minimum, being five and six going into the Purdue game isn't, you know, isn't crazy talk. 
So there's still enough that this team, you know, just can't prove until I see it on the field for me to feel like confident in kind of the idea they can be a bowl team or even near a bowl team. But I'm closer to believing that than I was a month ago because I do think that this team looks different in some key areas, most notably the line of scrimmage. It's hard to be worse than last season, but I feel like week one needs to kind of come with a warning of, you know, hold, hold off on the criticism, hold off on the, uh, the hold off on the Twitter really uh, until weeks three and four, and then really let it go after that. Uh, because that Ohio state one is just a, it's a dog fight. Uh, Zach Osterman from the Indy star joining us. You can read more of his work online at the com. You can also follow him on Twitter X, whatever it is now. Um, and you can listen to his podcast, mind your banners available almost everywhere. So Zach, thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate the time. And, uh, we'll see you Saturday. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Glad to be the, uh, the, the here for the shakedown cruise. I love it. See you, Zach. All right. Shout out to Zach Osterman for coming on his work at the You can check him out there. You can also listen to his podcast, Mind Your Banners, the more focused on IU athletics. They do about an episode a week, so be sure to check them out there as well. You can also follow Zach on Twitter, X, Twitter, or I don't know what it's called anymore, but you should follow him on whatever he's on because he's a good follow. He'll keep you up to date with all that stuff. So thanks to Zach for coming on. Thanks to you for tuning into our first episode. I'm glad you joined us. I'm excited to get to know you a little bit more and have you follow us. If you like today's episode, great. Go ahead and leave us a review on Spotify. Give us those five stars or five thumbs up. I don't know what they are, but give us whatever the top grade is. If you didn't like us, go review somebody else's podcast and well, keep tuning in because we got a lot more to come. You can follow our podcast on Spotify. That way you'll be alerted every time a new podcast is live. And you can subscribe to us on YouTube. That's how we make the money. Um, so please go ahead and do that and support our podcast in any way you feel comfortable doing. You can follow me on Twitter at Griff Gonzo, on Instagram and TikTok. Same thing at Griff Gonzo. But yeah, that's our show for today, guys. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you next time right here on the All In Podcast. But until then, be nice to each other and make today the best day of your life. We'll see you later.